story and forget that we're supposed to be living into the four-part story. And so these psalms are hopefully enabling us to remember what it's like to live into the four-part story. Because remember, what we're learning in this series is that the Bible is not fundamentally a textbook. The Bible is fundamentally a story. And it's a story that has four parts. That's the skeleton of the Bible. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. And without that skeleton, we won't really understand anything else in the Bible. If we have a wrong starting place, we won't end up in the right place. So we need to remember that the Bible's fundamentally a story. Now, in thinking about those four parts, we've also had five statements that put meat on the bones of that skeleton. You remember these? Can we go over these? Is that all right? I guess you all could say no. We are too hot. Forget it. Just get to it. Let's get out of here. No. So here are five statements. Remember the first one? God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Two, evil is real, but it never, ever gets the last word. Three, grace. God initiates, he pursues, and he saves. Beginning to the end of scripture is about grace. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something through his death and resurrection. When he said, it is finished, he meant it. Everything that he said he was going to do was as good as done. It means that we think that Jesus is a literal savior, excuse me, savior who actually saves people. Five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in your life, everything in my life, everything in the world, everything in Psalm 67, everything in the history of the world is moving toward Jesus. Now, I just wanted to mention those five to you because you're going to see all five of them today in Psalm 67. How about that? So let's look at Psalm 67. I want to read it, then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Listen to this, Psalm 67. This is the word of God. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Or better, reverence him. Let all the ends of the earth reverence him. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these words are true. We thank you that no matter what happens, your word will stand forever. So as we look at this passage together, would you bring us to a deeper sense of who we are? Would you also help us to see our Savior afresh? Holy Spirit, make Jesus irresistible to us anew. We pray this for your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Is my mic cutting in and out? Huh. Is it something I did? Not yet? Okay. This morning, we're thinking about the Psalms and living into the four-part story. Do I need batteries? Do I need batteries or not? We're living into the four-part story this morning, and what it means to live in the four-part story is this. 
And this is what Psalm 67 highlights for us. God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. Now, if you've been around, you've heard that a lot. I want to say it again. God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. And Psalm 67 is showing us that truth. And if it's going to take you a little while to wrap your mind around that statement, that's totally fine. I'll boil it down to one word. Psalm 67 is about mission. Psalm 67 is about mission. And as we're thinking about the reality that God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission, as we're thinking about the idea of mission, we're going to take two stops along our journey through Psalm 67. The first one is this. This psalm points back, and the second is this psalm points forward. So we're going to look at Psalm 67, thinking about mission, thinking about how the psalmist points back, and how the psalmist points forward. You got me? Clear enough? Well, let's jump in. Look how this psalm points back. Think about how the psalmist points us back to something. Did you notice the first two verses? What the psalmist does is he points back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years, maybe longer than that. He begins by pointing us back to something that was said hundreds, if not thousand plus years before this was written in Psalm 67. He points us back to a passage in Genesis 12, and he points us back to a passage in Numbers chapter 6. And he brings those to our attention, and he sandwiches them together. Do you recognize these words? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Does that sound familiar to you? That's something that I use almost every week. That's from number six. And then that God's power may be, uh, saving power may be known among all the nations. That reminds us of Genesis 12 and what God said to Abraham. It actually goes even further back than that. When the psalmist begins by pointing us back, he wants us to think about benediction. That's what number six is. He wants us to think about benediction. He wants us to think about blessing and God blessing his people, the church. And remember, when that pronouncement is made at the end of our service every week, taken from number six and the plenty of other places that I use every now and then, God is blessing you, his people. And blessing is not a prayer. That's not what a benediction is. Benediction is a proclamation. It is a declaration. It is an announcement. It is a promise of what God intends to be for you, his people. That means that when God pronounces the blessing on his people, he wants us to live in light of what he says he is going to be for us. That means when you hear the benediction at the end of the service, it isn't hope as if there's a little bit of uncertainty as to whether or not this is actually true. It is a declaration of what God intends for you and me. It's what God intends for his people and what he plans to do in them and to them and through them. Now, look at the specifics of what's mentioned in this benediction. 
Did you notice what's highlighted here in Psalm 67? We got two things that are highlighted about this blessing. Two things that you can take to the bank. Two things that you need to take this and receive it. The first one is grace. That God intends to be gracious to his people. That's what he says. That God be gracious to us. That means we need to understand grace, right? Remember, the grace of God is not God winking at our sin and rebellion and moving on. That's not grace. The grace of God is not him winking at sin, winking at brokenness, and just keep on going. That's not grace at all. Grace is actually dangerous. The grace of God is actually incredibly dangerous because the grace of God, when it comes into, excuse me, when it comes into our lives, the grace of God means that we have to admit that we are not in control. So the grace of God is dangerous for us because it shows our pride it exposes our desire for control, and the grace of God doesn't just expose that, it changes us so that we're willing to admit when we try to take control over everything. And grace, the grace of God, when it works in our lives, means that we stop trying to take credit for everything. And it also means when the grace of God is at work in our lives, then we, that we stop being overwhelmed at all of our faults and think that our faults and our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion against God defines us. The grace of God is dangerous to our pride, dangerous to where we want to take credit, and dangerous to our self-loathing. The grace of God turns us outward. The grace of God frees us. And I know that's hard to take in because we like to think that being in control and taking credit or self-loathing is, is a much better life. But it's not. The grace of God frees us to admit that we're wrong. Frees us to admit that we can't boast and take credit for anything. It frees us to live in such a way that our greatest failures do not ultimately define us. The grace of God makes us live in this tension. The grace of God makes us live in the tension of understanding that we are 100% responsible and that God is 100% in control. The grace of God makes us feel that tension all the time. So what am I going to do for work? Well, I don't know, but you're responsible, but I know God is sovereign. Well, what do I do with my kids? I don't know. But you're responsible and God is ultimately in control and directing and guiding. The grace of God makes us feel that tension. And we don't always like that either, do we? Sometimes we just want to say, Lord, you're just in control. You do everything. And we minimize our responsibility. But we act like we don't care. Some of us are on the other side. Where all we can think about is incessantly our responsibility and making the right decision. And what happens if I do this wrong? We do all this risk management stuff because we are so focused on ourselves and so focused on responsibility that we forget that God overrules and that God does whatever he wants. And we forget that even our bad decisions through the gospel actually work out for good. The grace of God is dangerous. Dangerous. 
The grace of God makes us live in this tension. So if right now in your life, if there are things going on in your life in which you are feeling responsible and not knowing exactly what you're supposed to do, that is exactly the place that God wants you to be in which you're feeling responsible and having to trust, in which you're trusting and making decisions, in which you're giving everything to him and understanding more about who he is. So beloved, when God says that he's gonna bless us, what that means is he is going to be gracious to you. And that means he's gonna continue to convict you. He's gonna continue to put you in those places of tension where you're feeling the tension. He is going to continue to work in your life. The grace of God, you see, the grace of God is when God loves the undeserving and the unlovely. The grace of God is when he looks at rebels like me and you and says, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to do this in your life. And it's going to wreck your life. Because you need to be set free. Because you're so curved in on yourself. You're living in bondage, even though we think things are great. Sometimes we think things are horrible. The grace of God frees us. God loves undeserving, unlovely people like us. Notice what else is mentioned in this blessing. It's not just the grace of God. It's also what? That his face would shine on us. Do you see that? That God's face is shining? Friends, I don't know what you think God's disposition is towards you, but I need you to know that in Jesus and through the gospel, God's disposition towards you is that his face is shining. That means that he is fundamentally pleased with you, not fundamentally dissatisfied with you. Fundamentally, he is pleased with you. When he thinks of you and looks upon you, his face is shining. His face is glowing. It means that his disposition towards you is that you are completely and fully known. There are no hidden places in your life with God. And you are completely and fully and completely loved, both at the same time. So that he sees you, he knows the worst about you, he knows exactly what you're thinking, why you do what you do, and he is disposed to look upon you with a shining face. Do you believe that? Beloved, that's one of the effects of what Jesus has done is to bring you into a position in which you daily recognize that God is pleased with you, that his face shines toward you. In a few weeks, I've got a wedding to do. And you know, one of the fun parts of a wedding ceremony is when the groom is up front and he sees the bride for the first time, right? You remember that look, guys? You remember what that meant? That look says it all, doesn't it? Can I press that even further? Do you remember when Adam and Eve were created? 
don't you think that the first thing that Adam saw when he became conscious was the smiling face of his God? What else would he see? What else would he have focused on? He'd just been created and life had been put in him and there it is, God saying, it was good. Do you remember the look in which he saw his wife for the first time? Do you remember that? Whoa, whoa, something like that in the original. <laughs> you get the look. Do you understand what I'm saying, right? It's unimaginable to me that anything else is possible other than Adam's first focal point was the smile of his God being upon him. And that's what Jesus brings back into your life because of what he has done. You see, this blessing that we have of grace and the shining face of our God is only possible because of the gospel. Jesus is grace in human form. Jesus is the blessing of God that brings us into the blessing of God. Jesus is God's smiling face who is willing to die for people like you and me so that we would understand that God really does know us and he really does love us. Well, it's not just that, is it? The psalmist doesn't just say, hey, you need to remember number six. You need to remember the benediction. You need to remember the blessing. He also says you can't forget about Genesis 12 that your saving power may be known among the nations. You see, it's always been God's plan for his glory to be displayed everywhere. God's always had a plan to spread his glory, to gather a people, to build his church. It's always been God's plan to be gracious. It's always been God's plan to fill the earth with his glory. And the psalmist is bringing these two things together because the psalmist wants us to live into the four-part story in which we're understanding the blessing of God, in which we're living according to his blessing, where we know he's going to be gracious, we know his face is going to shine, and we know that his plan, his mission, is to fill the earth with his glory. And he's going to have a people to further his glory everywhere throughout time and history. And as we are here today on June 25th, 2023, beloved, the plan of God has continued to expand even further than Psalm 67. Here we are. God's glory has been continuing and it won't stop. It won't stop. So the psalmist points us back but he also points us forward. If you go back and read this psalm and you start thinking about it critically and analytically, we find out why the psalmist puts together Genesis 12 and number six. We find out why he does this. Why does God put together the reality that he is going to bless his people, number six, and why does he put together blessing with the idea of reaching all people's mission? Why does he put this together? Look at the text. Don't forget, don't skip over this word. It's easy to do it. Let me read it for you and see if you catch it. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that, verse two, your way may be known on earth, on and on. The psalmist sandwiches number six with Genesis 12 and then makes this connection. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to understand that blessing and mission go together. Except it's the order that is really important. God blesses his people so that mission will happen. Do you see it? Now let me try to make this even more, let me try to make this even more practical. We don't live this way. Okay, let's just admit that. We don't live this way. The way that we live is that blessing comes as a result of what we do or lack of blessing based upon what we don't do. We live as if we get blessing because of something that we have done. We live as if blessing is actually a wage that has been earned. And this is saying the opposite. This is saying that blessing comes before mission can happen. We have to be receiving God's blessing, his grace, the smile of his face in order to go. Do you see it? He is connecting these dots and saying why it's important that we connect number six with Genesis 12 because mission can't happen without God's blessing. And we have a tendency to think, oh, well, blessing is what I get. Blessing is what I have earned. This is why in East North Carolina, when good things happen that we're not expecting, we say things like this, good, clean living. See? Oh, well, this result happened because of my good, clean living. See? I got the blessing because I had done this. I've earned that unexpected thing in my life because I was living in a good, clean way. Friends, God's reversing that. And he's trying to get that deep down into us. He's trying to get us to understand that we have to continue to live by his blessing and all that he is in order for us to do anything. And if you will, this follows all the way back to creation. Do you remember God created man and woman, smiling? And then do you notice what the text says? He blessed them and then said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, spread my glory. Do you hear it? You see, you were made. You were made and designed to receive blessing. And by receiving blessing, then go and live in a way that's consistent with that blessing. We were made to know the blessing of God and for that to affect all of our decisions and how we look at the world and how we look at everyone else. But when rebellion came, the idea of merit and earning is so deep within us that we love to think about blessing as something that we have earned. And God is reorienting us. He's redirecting us and saying, no, this is how you were made, to know my blessing and because you know my blessing and you have my smile upon you, go. Huge difference. You see, the psalm is trying to get us to think about what would life be like if I really believed that God was for me. And on this side of 
rebellion? What would my life really be like if I continued to repent and believe and know that God forgives and has done everything for me in Jesus? It means that we could live every day waking up, actually believing that his mercies are new, that he really does love us, that he really cares, and that he's actually using us in our callings every day, in the mundane, simple, basic things of life that God is using us. You see, we are the people that get to live from blessing. We're not the people that are trying to get blessing. We're not the people who are trying to earn something from God. We're the people who live in light of the fact that everything has been paid. And because everything has been paid, we don't have to worry about trying to earn anything. We just live from the freedom of what it means to know God and all that he is for us in Jesus because of what Jesus has done. Maybe that gets at you a little bit. I hope it does. And you notice when you read the text, there are actually two priorities for living this way. You see, priority number one is in verse two and the other is in verse four. The first one is that what we have, our priority is a, a, a gospel-driven life. Look, look at verse two. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. It means that a priority in living our lives and going based upon God's blessing is that we're living a gospel way of life. That the gospel means something for us all the time. In other words, our relationship with God, it, it, the gospel is not that, that God's given us um, uh, a new to-do list. It's that the gospel is the saving power of God and his way is, is actually wrapped up in a person. And that truth is embodied in Jesus. That we actually live by truth. That we believe that there is something that is objectively true. And we believe that that is found in the person of Jesus and what he has done. So that the message of this way of life is, is not new things to do. The, the message is that, if I can get it down to the core, the message of God's saving power is that real historical events have happened through this person named Jesus. That the cross is a real historical event. The resurrection is a real historical event, is an event in history. That's the good news. And that that event means that the cost has been paid. That's the message. That's the way of life. That's how we make sense of the world. That's how we understand where did we come from, what happened, what's going to fix it, and where are we going it all hinges on these historical events in which the price was paid. That's what we have. That's what we live by. And it's not just that. It's that another priority for us is justice. Do you notice that in verse 4? That God, you're, you're a just God. That, that you rule with equity and you guide the nations. 
Do you remember we talked about this when we went through Amos? The idea of justice in the Bible is comprehensive. It's the idea of protection. It's the idea of care. It's the idea of consequences. All that's explained and wrapped up in this talking about the justice of God right here. That God guides people like a shepherd. He cares for them. He protects. And there are also consequences for things that we do. So that our priority in living out the blessing of God and going and reaching people is that we have the gospel and we care about justice. Can't remember who ultimately said this, but do you remember this phrase? The arc of the universe bends toward justice. You ever heard that before? That if you live your life, there seems to be something built into the fabric of what it means to be a human being that you kind of reap what you sow. That that just kind of tends to happen. Now you might want to call that karma sometimes. I wouldn't encourage that, but I understand people do. They live that way. Well, I better do good so I can get good because if I do bad, then bad things might happen. In other words, we have this sense that justice is a thing. And because of God, as a follower of Jesus, we don't just think it's a thing, it's a reality. It's a hope. That means that we don't have to fight for every little thing. It also means that we don't think justice will come through politics, we don't think justice will come through military power, and we don't think justice will come through the right programs. But it means that we want to be involved everywhere that we can because our great hope for justice is God. And one day he will bring everything into its proper place. All wrongs will be made right. All that's sad will come untrue. Everything will be as it should be. This is why it's a priority for us. This is why we care about the gospel and we care about people. Do you see the flow and the momentum of this psalm? It starts with God blessing his people. That leads to mission. God blesses his people, the church, so that the church will be active in spreading his glory. It means the church will be active in proclaiming the gospel and caring about justice because we have a just God. It means that this whole psalm is fitting together and creating for us a way to live into the four-part story in which we're understanding that God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. And that leads us to this. When the psalmist points forward, he doesn't just explain to us how number six and Genesis 12 fit together. He actually tells us the tone of how it should happen. Did you notice that? Look at all the other phrases and all the other verses. The tone of this psalm is joy. The tone of this psalm is worship. The tone of this psalm is praising God. Do you see it? It's, it's everywhere. Throughout the psalm, almost every verse has something in it about joy, something in it about praising, something in it about worshiping. When we go, when we receive God's blessing and go, we don't go and love others and try to reach others because of some position of superiority. 
we go because of joy and thankfulness and delighting and praising God. Remember, Jesus had to deal with this very same thing. There was a time in Luke 10 in which Jesus sent out his disciples and said, I want you to go. I want you to tell people the truth and I want you to love them and all the things Jesus said that I'm just glossing and paraphrasing. And then they return. You remember what they say? Well, Jesus, let me tell you what happened. We, we were handling demons and, and we were seeing people's lives changed. And um, if it were in the 21st century, we would probably add things like, and you should see how many people that we have coming to our gatherings. And you should see how many people that we baptize. And you should see how many small groups we have. And you should look at the bottom line and how much money we're bringing in. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in those things. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see? Can you make the connection? This psalm is telling us that we ought to do mission because of the joy we have in God, the delight that we have in God, that we are praising God, not from a position of superiority, not from a position of authority, a position of delight and joy and thankfulness. Just like the disciples, we wanna come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look at what we're doing and show him all the results. And Jesus says, don't worry about the results. Worry about the relationship that you have with God. Because when we start thinking about doing mission based upon results, what ends up happening is that we end up thinking that we're experts. And we can work this Christian thing to get a result that we want. And Jesus says, no. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that God knows you and has loved you and his face is shining towards you that he promises to be gracious to you, that he's going to bless you. And as we delight in God, that fuels us to go. So let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about your conversations? What, what, what do you like to talk about? You realize we all naturally praise what we worship, right? Right? We naturally celebrate what we love. What is it that you like to talk about? You like to talk about sports? You like to talk about your work? You like to talk about things that you've accomplished? You like to talk about challenges that are in your life? And if you hear me saying that you shouldn't talk about those things, you missed it. Those are natural for us to talk about, your hobbies, things that's going on, it's natural to talk about that. Talk about those things. I'm saying do a little bit deeper dive and think about what is it that you really like to talk about because you're going to illustrate what you really love, what you really worship, what really has a hold of your heart, even if that is self-absorption. You like to talk about yourself. And I ask you those questions to say this, where is it that you're delighting in God? Where is it that you are delighting in God? Not what you know about God, but God. What is it that he is for you that just gets you going? That is exciting for you, overwhelming for you. 
leads to astonishment, to where you can't imagine that this is true, but it is. Beloved, as we delight ourselves in God, it will lead us to naturally talk about God and to praise God and be thankful for God in our relationships. And that's why, lastly, when the psalmist points us forward, he ultimately gets to consummation. Look at verse 6. The psalmist doesn't just point us forward to tell us, hey, here's here's how we put number 6 and Genesis 12 together. He ultimately lands on consummation. The earth, at verse 6, has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth reverence him. Verse 6 is the only past tense in the entire psalm. Does that stand out to you? Psalmist is talking about God blessing us and, and us reaching others with truth and justice. And, and here it is at, the ver- at verse 6, you have past tense. Has the earth has yielded? What? The psalmist is, is speaking as if this was already done. How in the world can the psalmist write that the earth has yielded its increase? There's a huge jump from the end of verse 5 to verse 6. How in the world can God talk about blessing and mission and how that relates to one another and then all of a sudden we go to past tense? The psalmist is guiding us down along the corridors of history so that what the psalmist writes is very similar to what John might say or the Apostle Paul might say. You remember the time when Jesus was praying, John records this and he says, Jesus says to his father, Lord, uh, I, have, I have glorified you on earth. I have accomplished all the work that you've given me to do. Jesus said that in John 17, verse 4, before he went to the cross. How can he say that? When the Apostle Paul writes about how we have been justified in God and glorified, how could he write it as if it was past tense? Do you see the connection? Beloved, we have a literal Savior who accomplishes redemption for his people. We have a living Christ who actually does what he says, and he brings to fulfillment all that the Old Testament anticipates. The author is writing so that we would look forward to Jesus and all that he would accomplish in which we would know God's blessing and know the shiningness of his face and understand grace even more deeply and understand mission even more deeply and understand that it's only possible through our Christ coming and dying and rising again. Jesus has accomplished it all. And that's what brings us to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, 